0: This is a Soulfire production. And we're back, everybody. Welcome to Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am so passionate about today's conversation with the amazing Sarah Russell. Sarah is a skills for change coach aiming to cultivate radical self love with actionable tools for transformation. Yeah. Pause. Let that sink in. Actionable tools for transformation. How many of you guys have felt stuck, whether that's in a career or in a relationship or somewhere in life where you're not happy, you're definitely not thriving, and you're sure as hell not psyched? This is where Sarah comes in. Sarah has a system that blew my mind on today's episode, whether it be relationships or careers or any of these decisions that you are diving into and how to create change in your life. We also dive into toxic monogamy. We dive into boundary setting Oh my gosh, you guys, Like, if you are in a relationship, you need to listen to this show. Not only is it going to help you show up better in relationship, but it's going to help you show up as an individual and show up in life as your full authentic self. Sarah is amazing. I have linked all of the ways to get a hold of her in the show notes. Go follow her on Instagram, check her out online, shoot her an email, and work through Skills for Change with her. Enjoy this one. So I guess a great place to start is kind of what led you
1: into the work you're doing now. Sure. That's already an emotional question, but I'm happy to go there. So I was in a relationship and I had been in a long-term committed relationship that was not satisfying. By the end of it, um, we were really good friends. Mm. We were best friends. And it was pretty platonic at the end of it. And I'm one of my primary love languages is physical touch. And so there was this piece that was really missing from my satisfaction. And all during the course of that relationship, I had a friend who is also a skills for change coach in town, Molly Katzman. And she was saying, you should go see the person who trained me. You should talk to her about this. She's great with relationships. And I was at my end with that relationship. I didn't want to make it work. I wasn't looking for solutions. I was looking for a way out. And Mm -hmm. so I wasn't willing to do anything besides just kind of wait it out. And then I got into another relationship, and it was passionate and romantic, and there was adventure, and there was chemistry, and there was drama all of the time. I was like, oh, I can't. Which is also
0: intoxicating for a moment.
1: It was. I mean, I was deep in new relationship energy, so the hormones were flying, and like there was this chemistry and this synergy, and this like, yes, like just so much yes. And then when it was a no, I was like, oh,
0: no. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And so I was like, okay, now it's time to reach out to her because this is the second relationship. It's completely the opposite of my last one and I'm still floundering. So what's the common denominator? It's me. Mm -hmm. So what am I doing? So I went and I talked to her. She had a 20 minute call. I burst into tears as soon as she said hello. (laughs) Told her my whole story. She was so kind and so empathetic and then at the end, so very, very pragmatic. Like it wasn't just, she wasn't just holding space, although she did that. It wasn't just normalizing, although she did that. And then she was also like, well, if I were you, what I would want is, and I was like, oh, that's, that is what I want. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's very
0: solution based. Can you kind of explain skills for change for listeners that aren't familiar with it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Skills for change, the, the tools are in the title, right? So it's skills, we're skill building. We're not going, yeah, you should have come in here knowing all of this already These are things that we need to learn. Often they're counterintuitive. Often it's counterculture. So it's a skill set that we need to build. For change, it starts with this premise, like, can people change? Because that's something, you know, this idea of, like, once a cheater, always a cheater. We have Mm -hmm. these colloquialisms in the culture that lead us to believe that if somebody's some way, they're going to be that way forever, like what's your what's your horoscope sign well that's just how you're gonna be right and skills for change challenges that we go with the right motivation with the right amount of energy with the right skill set you actually can create change but those pieces all need to be there
0: Mm. so would you say that most people that are coming to you have the motivation to change or the drive to make something different
1: I think what happens is most people come to me when they've tried everything else Mm -hmm. and it hasn't worked. And now they're kind of at their wits end. And they're like, I don't even know what it is that you do, but it's not everything else that I've tried. Um, So they know something's not working. They don't even necessarily know what that is. Mm -hmm. And so rather than telling me what they'd like to change, like in a positive direction, it's mostly like what needs to stop. Mm -hmm. I need to stop this job. I need to fix this relationship. It's not like, how can you give me my best, brightest, shiniest life? It's like, I'm so worn out and I'm so hopeless right now that I don't even know what I want anymore. And so then that's often when people are coming through my door. Mm. So how is that
0: different from a traditional like therapy session or a therapist? What kind of sets aside Therapy versus skills for change
1: sure so skills for change part of its lineage is Eric burns work with transactional analysis And so we're looking at very specific context versus big generalities We don't need to go into your past and figure out every childhood trauma that you experienced Although if you need to talk about that that's available We're going in this particular moment. What worked what didn't work? And is there some kind of micro intervention that we can put in the next time? You're in that specific context or a context like that Mm. and then the big thing that differentiates us is we do a power analysis so for instance if I'm talking about nonviolent communication which is a cooperative communication style a lot of people know often they'll give the each party involved equal time to talk but a skills for change practitioner will come in and be like who has more power in this dynamic who's been more oppressed in this dynamic that person probably actually needs more time and if they want more time we want to make that available so it's more about equity versus equality like what does each person need rather Mm. than making sure it's completely equal
0: Mm mm-hmm I love that. And something that really stuck out to me was these micro interventions, because I truly believe that until we, we will subconsciously create the same problem in our life, we'll subconsciously find ourselves in the same relationship or the same argument or the same job. And like you were saying, like I did two very polar opposite things and still found myself in the same moment. And so bringing kind of that subconscious action to the surface and then working with it is kind of what that micro-intervention felt like to me, like recognizing a pattern.
1: Absolutely. A lot of what I'm teaching is awareness. So when was the moment of awareness? What was happening in that moment of awareness? What was going on in your body? What was going on in your heart? What was going on in your mind? Because most of us blow past that moment and go right into storytelling. Mm -hmm. Okay, who did something right? Who did something wrong? Do I need to fix something? Do they need to fix something? Rather than being able to sit with that moment of awareness. Mm -hmm. So that is really critical in the work that I'm doing. And is it almost always relational? It's interesting because I feel like those are the people I love working with. Because that's what I entered into needing. So Mm -hmm. like this gift that you give to the world is the gift that you needed to receive from the world. So Mm -hmm. I love working with relationships but i had a couple calls today and they were both all about career changes yeah
0: um which in some extent is relational right might not be romantic but exactly. there's definitely a
1: relationship there and thank you for naming that totally
0: um, so one thing I've got to draw attention to, cause I told you before the show, I couldn't wait. I'm like cozying in and getting ready to <laughs> talk about it <laughs> in even just your Instagram bio, it says relationship anarchist. And I was like, spicy, mm-hmm.
1: gotta know more. So what do you mean by that? Sure. So Andrew, Andy Nordgren wrote the relationship anarchy short manifesto where they outline different principles around what relationship anarchy is. And here's the thing is relationship anarchy can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I'll give you kind of the broad spectrum idea of it, but then each of us is gonna have our own particular flavor on it. But it's this idea that we're customizing our commitments and we're deprioritizing sexual relationships as the most important relationship in our life. So there's this coupleism in the culture and it's this idea, um, Elizabeth Brake actually talks about this concept that the goal is to be in a sexual partnership and that that relationship is what everybody wants it's what's most normal and there's this idea of being special and most chosen once you're in that mm-hmm. kind of dynamic and what happens is is it deprioritizes it puts on this like this hierarchy all of the other relationships in our life so where do best friends fall into there where do where does family fall in there where do coworkers fall in there And so what relationship anarchy is doing is going, each relationship gets to have the amount of importance that it actually has in my life, not some predetermined cultural standard around like, well, now that I'm having sex with you, you have veto power over my choices. You're gonna be the number one priority always. It allows us to really be aware, again, conscientious of the kinds of dynamics we're entering into.
0: Yeah, so that is such a radical idea to so many people. Yeah. Um, you know, I know the first time that I started kind of stumbling, because it didn't feel like I walked confidently into that decision, but stumbling into like, Oh, wait, no, that doesn't feel good. When Mm -hmm. I'm abandoning this longtime friendship, or I'm finding that I'm hanging out with you and the boys instead of Mm -hmm. doing this thing I want to do. And we, you know, there are certain like gives and takes in every relationship. Right. Um, but how do you introduce to somebody the idea, that exact idea that like, it is so prominent in society, this hierarchy of relationship, if you will, how do couples kind of start to
1: digest that? Sure. So, I actually talked about it with my best friends first, where I said, look, I wanna be more romantic with you. I don't want romance to just be reserved for this person that I'm having sex with. I want to hold your hand while we walk through the woods on a misty morning, drinking our favorite mugs of golden milk while we read Mary Oliver poems to each other. And when I presented this to my best friend, she was like, hell yeah, I wanna do more of that with you. And what happens is when we prioritize coupleism, we enter into scarcity as well where all of a sudden this person is filling so much of our bucket mm. that then there's this lack, there's the scarcity versus if we're going, I can diversify that. Like I can also get this need met from these people out here without it jeopardizing or threatening our relationship. And so all of a sudden you're walking around full of love, full of connection, full of commitment, full of support. And the kind of person you can be in relationship with anybody from that state is so radically different. So I started with my closest friends first, and there were actually five of us, um, and I sat down with them, and I was like, I'm committed to this, and it's going to be messy, and I'm going to make mistakes, and it's going to be confusing, but are y'all willing to try it with me? And this group committed, like, yeah, we're going to learn about this, and yeah, we're going to practice this, and we're going to start trying to embody this, where Mm -hmm. we start prioritizing each other as much as as actually natural for us to do. Um, Rather than pretending that this isn't as like these are long term committed partnerships that I'm in with these people. And so treating them accordingly.
0: So then is that kind of the first step that you would also take if you were working with a couple and introducing
1: this idea? So if I was working with a couple, one of the things that I like to do is work with each of them individually first before I work with them together Mm -hmm. so that I can go, what do you want? What do you need? what's working, what's not working, and then can ask the other person the same questions. And then what I'm usually doing is I'm comparing, like, where are their commonalities? Where are their differences? Where are their gaps? One person talked about, like, we never go bowling anymore, and the other person never mentioned bowling at all. I have no idea how that person actually feels about that activity. So figuring out that first and then going, okay, how can we outsource this? How can we get this need met? How can we come from a place of abundance rather than scarcity? But yeah, talking to them individually first before trying to figure out the relationship. Um, This is a Franklin view concept that the people in the relationship are more important than the relationship. Mm -hmm. So taking care of the people first before I take care of the relationship.
0: Mm. Yeah. I talk about that a lot with, um, in any relationship, it feels like there's three entities. Yeah. There are the two partners or multiple partners. Right. And then there is the energy that is the relationship between partners. Right. Right. Um and so I would love to get your thoughts on this because for me for that very reason polyamory feels very overwhelming to harvest that energy that relational energy between multiple partners and still hold myself in my authenticity and be getting my needs met from other places too that may not be in romantic partnership. Um, So is that an area that you dive into with skills for change?
1: Oh, yeah. So what's interesting about any kind of open relating polyamory, consensual non-monogamy, you know, again, there's this buffet that we can choose from, right? When we're picking our titles. I like to say that love is a limitless resource, but time and energy are not. Mm. So are you really good at prioritizing? your time and energy. Are you really clear on what it is you want and need? Are you one of those people where you just kind of say yes before you're even sure what you're committing to? And so being able to be really clear with your internal negotiations first, and then being able to transparently externally negotiate with whoever else is involved in the dynamic. So there's so much consent. But that takes so much energy to have To have the skill set to cooperatively communicate, to be willing to constantly engage because there's going to be dignified differences, especially across multiple relationships that are all intersecting with each other. You have to be really committed to a certain amount of energy in order to participate in a way where, I mean, it's still going to get messy. Right. But in order for everybody to at least be opting in with the information they need to know. Yeah.
0: One thing I do love... um that I was reading um, Opening Up. Have you read that? I haven't. Um, great book. I'm not even nearly close to being done with it, but so far it's great. And one of the things that I love that the author touches on is she says, um, when we are in monogamous relationship or in partnership Um, There's a societal standard or this preconceived notion that now that person, that partner is supposed to be everything I ever need from a love standpoint, from a romantic standpoint, from a critical thinking standpoint. For all of these aspects of my personality, which are vast, that is supposed to be the human in my life that can cater to all of those things exactly how I need them to. Right. And that is exhausting for that other person. Right. Um, and so that was, you know, kind of her, one of her grounds for polyamory was that, you know, one of the things that this community has figured out is that in having multiple partnerships, and not every single one has to be sexual. Right. Right. Um, but, emo- you know, they have found that emotional cheating, mm-hmm. I put cheating in quotation marks, is more often more painful for females than a physical um, and so this idea of going to different wells to get my no- emotional needs met and my physical needs met, um, again, sounds, sounds like it could be exhausting if there's not mm-hmm. like you are saying, kind of like those pre-negotiated understood, um, I can't remember the word you used, internal negotiations, negotiations. Yeah. um, yeah. Can you kind of touch on that a little bit on how you might best interact with
1: other people fulfilling
0: these different areas in your life?
1: Yeah. So I think it's really important to be replenished to begin with. So if you are crying all the time, if you're feeling exhausted, defeated, hopeless, that's not a great time to set stretch goals for yourself. This idea that you will be able to know what you want to need when you're you're in a more replenished state is a little bit of idealism. Mm. So if somebody's having a really hard time, if they're feeling super drained, I'm going to want to get them replenished first. You know, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? Are you taking care of your physical needs? Are you taking care of your emotional needs? I'd want to get them up into um I have this depletion scale that I mentioned. And uh If you're in positive numbers on that scale, it's a lot easier to set life design goals for yourself. Can you explain the scale just a little bit for new listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So this is from Julia Kelleher. She came up with a depletion repletion scale and it's a 20 point scale. And at the top of the scale, we have a positive 10, full empowerment and plenitude. We go down to a fragile neutral at zero and then down into negative numbers. And negative 10 is despair and powerlessness, where it's not necessarily suicidal ideation, but it is this idea of questioning your belonging on the planet. Why am I here? What's the point of it all? I don't know what the next steps are. Very existential. Mm -hmm. And so, and and it can also be like, if we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, it can also be like, do you have shelter. Mm-hmm. Are you in a food desert? Do you have access to clean water? So it can also be very practical. It can it can be both or either or, right? And so if somebody's in those negative numbers, asking them to be able you don't have the energy to cooperate. You're not going to have the energy to communicate effectively. It's going to be really hard for you to hold your boundaries. And if you are trying to hold your boundaries, they're probably going to be really rigid and aggressive or harsh. Versus if someone's in the positive end of that scale, then they might be able to hold more complexity. They may be able to have more spaciousness in their body to have a challenging conversation. So I think it's really important to be replenished before you enter Mm. into any of that dynamic.
0: Mm -hmm. One thing, I do something very, very similar with my clients. Um, And I don't know if you've had the same experience, but when I start asking, you know, what's your nutrition look like? What does your sleep look like? People are like, that's not what I'm coming to you for me. You know what I mean? Like I'm here for this emotional need or this trauma or these different things. How do you work with that?
1: I mean, that's my origin story. And all of this, um, Nancy Chanteau, that woman I mentioned earlier who I was first talking to, I would get so irritated when she would. And I was like, I need help with my relationship, not with my sleeping schedule. Like that's not what I'm here to talk about. And so I know what that frustration feels like in my body and I know that it's coming from this place of urgency this mm-hmm. like I need to stop feeling this bad and I need to I need it to stop now so can you do that? And it feels like <clears throat> excuse me. You're all good. It feels like such a simple solution that we bypass it. Mm. And we don't believe in the magic of those micro interventions that I mentioned earlier of like how powerful it can be to have a good night's sleep and a good meal before you try to make any decisions to recenter or ground before you enter into a difficult conversation. I think it feels so small that people underestimate it. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be this kind of fake it till you make it where I'm like, look, it's a little bit like, do you trust me? Mm. Can you trust me for this hour? Can you trust me for three weeks? Can you trust me for, like, how long can you trust me for that even though you think what I'm saying is nonsense, you're willing to give it a shot because you've tried everything else and it hasn't worked. Are you willing to try something different now?
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. And just recognizing and seeing, you're you're seeing depletion in front of you when you see right. that breakdown. right? When you see that, you know, like you were saying, there's... There's a lot of drive behind it. There's a lot of wanting to fix it behind it. But in in my experience, that is exactly like I'm witnessing
1: depletion. Right. We yeah. call them the yeah butters where it's like, well, have you tried this? Yeah, but what about that? Yeah, but well, what about? Yeah, but like, oh, you're depleted. Yeah. There are no solutions in front of you right now. You're too depleted to see possibilities. Mm.
0: Okay. Listeners, take that right now. <laughs> Just evaluate <laughs> these little things. Are you sleeping? Are you eating? Are you hydrated? Um, coffee and energy drinks, if you're finding yourself that you need those throughout the day, you have these little cues that might be telling you about lingering headache. Maybe don't grab for a Tylenol. Maybe drink some water, mm-hmm. right? We have we have little cues throughout. Yeah. Um, so what is... I have a handful of of ideas in my head, but what do you find couples are coming to your practice most often in hopes to uncover or achieve or
1: change? It's really interesting, and I don't want to give ho- false hope here, but often what's happening is people are coming in and there's not as big of a gap as they think there is. Every now and then a couple will come in and I'll be like, no, this is a really big gap and we probably need to talk about what a transition would look like. But so often people are coming in and they just don't know how to see, hear, and understand each other. And once they have their worldview acknowledged and validated, it just opens up more possibility for cooperation and negotiation. And so a lot of people are coming in going, you just don't understand. And so if we can get to the point where they understand each other, and I have a whole protocol for how I go through so that it's like Do you feel seen, heard, and understood? Do you feel validated in this moment? Do you need a repair after everything that's happened? Where I take them through in a pretty formulaic way, how to break all of that down. But most of the time, it's because we're not taught how to directly communicate with each other. We have Mm -hmm. a really indirect passive communication style culturally. Then on top of that, this romanticism that our partner, especially if we've been together a long time, is supposed to be a mind reader and just know what it is that we want. Then on top of that pile, you throw, well, if you loved me, you'd do it. Yikes. hmm And then this idea that, oh, and now we're supposed to agree. And we're supposed to have the same political beliefs and the same nutrition preferences and the same sleep schedule and the same friends. And all of a sudden, that becomes a lot of pressure and the blinders go on and people can't see, here and understand each other anymore. So a lot of that is me just peeling back like, do you hear what she said? Can you understand how she got there? mm and
0: does this happen on like I'm I'm imagining a couple comes into a session in conflict or with with a certain argument or fight that was had, mm-hmm. and then you use this method to kind of deconstruct that that argument. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, got it. Got it. Um, and so I'm trying to think how I want to say this in sitting with this and sitting in relationship and sitting in people's conflict for so long. And, and as a therapist, I completely feel you. um, What do you kind of do to keep your own relationships alive, your own, you know what I mean? Like not going into therapist mode of, um, is she seen, understood, validated in this experience or is he, and how do you kind of, take take the
1: uh skills for change hat off in your own life or do you that's an interesting question um i also practice qigong and one of the things i learned in qigong was that by the time you're deeply embodying qigong you're never not doing qigong and so you're it's in yoga they have that concept can you take it off the mat And so it's this idea of like, how do you actually apply it in a daily mediocre transaction and not just when you're in this elevated state or like when I'm in the room with the hat on, but like, how do I actually embody these principles in such a deep way that they become the new habit? They become the new automatic move Mm. rather than a practice that I sometimes use and sometimes don't use something that I have to warn people of on the front end when they're first getting into a relationship with me. This is someone who's like, oh, I, I just really want to be friends with you. And I'm like, do you want to know <laughs> what it's like to be friends with me? Yeah. Or if somebody's like, yeah, let's you know, let go on a date. And I'm like, do you want to know? <laughs> like, what's well, required to go on a date with me? Can you sign this waiver? And you say, you say waiver? And I have, I'm, I'm serious, I have a three-page core relationship values document where I'm like, this is how I handle conflict. This is how I talk about safer sex practices. This is how much time I spend with my friends, I'm like you need to know, so you're not taking it personally. <laughs> it's like informed consent, it's yeah, <laughs> right, right. And so with the people in my life, I mean, bless them, they're interested and they're engaged and they're supportive. But like they they let me live in this in this body that believes in these practices, and they let me use my jargon, and they you know let me use this particular lens that I like looking through so much, and so many of them have adopted it, um, both because of their own interest in it and because of their love for me. And so I'm really fortunate that I get to swim in this water a Mm -hmm. lot. And you know, who's to say five years from now, 10 years from now, um, what the love of my life is going to be. But right now this is the love of my life. And I love using these principles because they create such incredible intimacy in my life. And I love relationships so much. And I'm so centered in my heart so much of the time that to be able to live in that space feels really, really like a blessing.
0: Yeah. And when you talk principles, are you talking about kind of the communication style in which you are living or kind of like the Qigong principles?
1: It's it's both, um, but it's this idea. I was reading this recently. I can't remember who to attribute this to, but they were talking about that Oh, I know. It was Jessica from House of Hoodoo. She has this hoodoo shop in New Orleans. She's wonderful. Um, She was saying that so often your partner gets the worst of you. Like Mm -hmm. now that they're in this relationship, they get to see you at your crankiest, your most depleted, your most unfiltered self, and that we save like our best selves for the people that barely know us where we're on our best behavior. Mm -hmm. And so it's this idea of like, how do you bridge that gap between authenticity and not having to wear this mask constantly but still treating the other person as an autonomous sovereign being that is going to be impacted by your actions. And so maybe don't just be completely unfiltered around them and say whatever is on the top of your mind and it doesn't matter what emotional state you're in, just engage anyway. Like being able to still hold the people that I care about with care Mm -hmm. feels really, really important to me. So yeah, like when somebody comes home you know, making sure that I'm centered when they walk through the door and like having genuine curiosity about their day rather than just launching into like, Oh yeah. And then the washing machine broke. And then so-and-so called me like taking a minute to have that ritual of connection mm-hmm. feels really important to me. And then if somebody says something that's triggering to me, not immediately snapping and going, well, what did you mean when you said that? Like, Oh, I know this. I know to pause and take a deep breath and ask a question I know these moves. Why wouldn't I employ these with the people that I love so much rather than just assume like, yeah, they're going to forgive me for everything. So I might as well just do whatever I want to do in this moment.
0: Totally. I was talking with one of my good girlfriends, Kelly. Um, Shout out, Kelly. Hey. (laughs) And she is dating my best friend, Connor. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I have watched their relationship ebb and flow and they joke all the time. Kelly's like, you're kind of our unofficial relationship therapist. And I'm like, yeah, except the way ethics work, I could never actually do that. So let's just keep it unofficial. Okay. Right. (laughs) But something I loved so much that she said that resonates with so many people I know is when things got really, really tough between her and Connor, they had, they've been through so much. I mean, everyone in relationship has been through a lot, especially this year, right? We've been right. asked to be inside with our partner and not leave and not practice that autonomy that we talked right. about at the beginning of the episode. So we're, we're in a time now that is, you know, I hate saying unprecedented, but it is, you it know, is. for lack of a better term, this is something that we haven't been asked to do in any time that we can remember. Mm. And one thing she said was, you know, when I have been ready to call it quits, when I have been ready to be like, fuck it, I am done, I am out. She was like, there is no other person that deserves the growth and the person that I am now than my partner that has been through all of that with me. Am I seriously going to go find some greener grass And let that new person who hasn't seen the raw, rigid, cranky side of me Mm -hmm. get this new emerged phoenix of a person that I am. Right. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure.
1: Nayira Wahid has this poem where she talks about, let soulmates be what they are. Five minutes, five days, five weeks, five months, five years, five lifetimes. And this idea of knowing when you lean out and knowing when you lean in and letting that be from a place of being centered and deep knowing rather than resentment and frustration and hopelessness feels critical. Like, how do you know when you keep investing? How do you know when you stop investing? And if you're doing it from a place of reactivity and fear, and depletion, and you're making big choices in those moments, Mm. you might not be as satisfied as if you took a moment to take a little bit of space, take a breath, get a couple different perspectives, and wait. like See how you feel after you've given it a little bit more time. So I don't think that a relationship is owed longevity just because it's already had longevity. So if that soulmate pairing has had its moment and those people are ready to drift away from each other I don't believe the only successful relationship is one that and again this is Franklin view ends with a death sentence till death do us part Mm -hmm. that's not the only way to have a successful relationship that being said if both people are still really in it and both people are committed to the work and they're going we want this. We just don't quite know how to navigate it yet. There's probably some kind of collective action, community support, skill building that would really benefit that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so then it might be, then it might be okay to keep growing together. But this idea that because we've grown together, we have to keep growing together—I always want it to be a choice, mm-hmm. a conscious decision, a conscious decision. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, kind of on the flip side of that, then there is also and it's very very western this idea that or concept that when a relationship ends the parties have to hate each other they have to be done i'm watching you throw
1: your hands up this i mean this it's it's toxic monogamy it's i mean it it drives me bonkers because it feels i agree with you i agree that that's the cultural narrative and there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser and there has to be a good guy and there has to be a bad guy. And when I'm doing one, I do mediations and one of the things I offer in mediations is something called a dignified parting where people who are ready to transition the relationship in some way, maybe that's a breakup. Maybe they need some time to not talk to each other. Maybe they just need to shift certain elements that aren't working anymore, but it's like what's working And what's not working, where do we have overlap and where do we have disconnect? And this idea that it has to be black or white, all or nothing, does not work for my cosmology. This idea that if you're not, again, it's prioritizing sex, right? Well, if we're not having sex with each other anymore, then we're useless to each other. We're Mm. worthless to each other. Or even the way that we handle jealousy, like when new partners come into the picture, this idea that we're somehow in competition with other human beings it's just, it's, it's really, it feels like a really life draining story to me. Yeah. So in these, um,
0: in these sessions, I, I want to say, I know that Gwyneth Paltrow used this and it, and I can't think of who to attribute, but this idea of conscious uncoupling, mm-hmm. um, this sounds very similar right. to your, to your mediations. Yeah. Can you kind of walk me through what that might look like to kind of, instead of, right versus wrong, I hate you, you did this, we're done. You know, like that, even though people package it in this this presentation of closure, that Have is... you ever seen that? Right. Nothing about that feels like closure. It right. feels like resentment and right. energy spent and whatever I hate him or whatever she's nothing or they're this or they're that- that feels more energy-sucking to me than, yeah, it didn't work, right? And just because it didn't work doesn't, you know, the, one of the first things we learn in couples counseling is if you're doing couples counseling and your couple breaks up, that wasn't failed counseling. Right. That was probably exactly what that couple needed. Right. And so, you know, kind of speaking to that, speaking to maybe it's a changing of the vernacular or or a reframe or the way we're looking at things, like, is there a way to do this more consciously? And if so, what does it look like?
1: Absolutely. So again, it's really helpful to talk to both people or however many people are involved and go, what's your 100%? Ideally, what would this look like for you? So one person might come in and be like, well, I know we're not going to be sexually exclusive anymore, but I would like to maintain a platonic friendship, maybe hang out once a week, Um, We can text each other whenever we feel like it. Um, And then the other person might be like, I need three months of space because I wasn't ready for this to transition. And I need to take a little bit more time to get you out of my bones. But then after that, we can check in again and see how much of what you want is actually available. So we get both people to, they're allowed to want what they want and Mm -hmm. need what they need, even if those things are different. And again, we'll see like if we can bridge the differences in some way, if we just need to accept the unacceptable We can't actually come to a win win in this moment. So, somebody's going to have to lose at some point. And, like, how do we mitigate that and, you know, take care of that challenge? Um, And then I write up a contract where I think it's really important to have it in writing where it's like, okay, these two people have agreed they're going to transition. If they bump into each other on the street, they're going to give each other big hugs and kisses because they're still like deep in the friendship. Or, they're gonna give each other a cordial hello, but they're not gonna stop and talk because it's still too painful, and right now they're in that like transition period where they just need more space from each other. How much contact do we want there to be? Do we need there to be no contact for a certain amount of time? Do we need there to be super transaction only, like, hey, your bill's at the house, can you come pick it up kind of context? Or can you like text each other good morning every morning still? Mm-hmm. Like What actually feels available? What feels good for you in this moment? So we go through all of the different possibilities that though a lot of energy to go through
0: those possibilities feels like you get rid of the what if. Yeah. And because I know how many clients, you know, I walk my clients through this all the time. It's like, what if this happened? Or what if they're out there doing this? Or what if it and one of my favorite things is like, what if they are? Mm
1: -hmm. Right?
0: Does that change where we are right now? Does that change who you are right now? Does that change your process? Right. And I think that in going through this, um, kind of going back to your depletion scale, it helps people step into their power. It helps people step into knowing in this moment I do this, or it doesn't leave it up to to chance or to power dynamic or anything like that.
1: And power is where I'm going with all of this, where I'm trying to give all of the people involved as much of their power as is available. I'm going, how can you feel as powerful as you actually are in this moment? Where can you see that you have choice? Where can you see that it's okay to enact a boundary? Where can you see that it's okay to ask for what you want? I'm trying to empower people through this because those are the kinds of solutions that are gonna be most satisfying, not when somebody feels one down or when somebody feels like they're being taken advantage of or Mm -hmm. not appreciated. Like if both people are feeling powerful in that moment and they know I have choice here and I have options here, How do you work with boundary setting in a relationship,
0: especially if people are coming to you with weak
1: boundaries or not even sure of what they look like? Sure. So most people really want someone else to hold their boundary for them. Mm -hmm. So I don't want you to do this, so you can't do that. And if you do this, I'm going to punish you. Rather than there being some kind of natural consequence. Okay, I'm going to tell you that... If this happens, I'm going to need to take some space from you. If this happens, I'm going to have to decrease our intimacy. If this happens, I'm going to have to reevaluate how much I trust you. There can be a natural consequence, but we have to hold our own boundaries for ourselves. Because if we're not willing to hold our boundary, why would the other person be willing to hold our boundary if they're going, that's not my standard, that's not my value, that's not what I want, you're asking me to do this for you, but you don't even want to do it for you. Mm Mm-hmm so we have to be able we have to be willing to commit to holding our boundaries for ourselves first and then the other person can be like oh they're they're serious that actually does have meaning and they get to organize around us then rather than us trying to control or dominate them keep them from doing something they want to do make them do something they don't want to do instead we go i'm going to take care of myself in this moment and if you can't respect the boundary that i have set you may not get to keep participating with me in this way.
0: Mm -hmm. One thing I love too is reframing um, instead of you can't do this, don't do this. You always do this and this happens. Mm -hmm. Um, I can feel 12-year-old Lindsay inside crossing her arms and stomping her foot and being like, bullshit, you can tell me what I can and can't do right like right that also doesn't feel good right. so how do you kind of negotiate that
1: boundary like when a boundary goes too far or goes toxic sure so gottman's research around all of this is really helpful where he talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and this idea of having a soft startup versus versus a harsh startup hey i want to talk to you about this thing when would be a good time versus I can't even believe you did that thing again. And like launching into the middle of a big tirade, but you know, being able to have um, what feels like a a conversation that they can opt into rather than just get dropped into the middle of, Mm -hmm. and then keeping criticism and contempt out of it so that the other person then doesn't become defensive. Right. So again, have a formula for this where you get to, Acknowledge somebody else's impact on you. And again, this is where Skills for Change deviates from nonviolent communication somewhat, from my understanding of it. We put our story directly on the other person. When you, observable fact, like when you slammed the door, I felt scared. And I have a favor. Will you please try to control your temper? Because I, I can feel my body get tense and I pull away from you and I want to feel connected to you when, even when we're in the middle of conflict. So is there like, can you change that behavior? Like we can still make requests. Mm-hmm. We can still say, Hey, this thing you're doing is intolerable for me. Hey, this thing you're doing is making me feel a certain way. We can still talk about that, but we're not putting down an ultimatum. You can't slam the door or I'll leave. Right. It's like, well, if they slam the door, then you might need to move your body away. You might actually need to enact that boundary rather than threaten them. Like, if you don't do this, then I'm going to do that. You may need to walk away if somebody's doing something that feels scary for you, if if that's available for you. And I recognize that's not available for everyone. But yeah, so you can recognize the impact and still have requests and not make ultimatums. Yeah, I like to use, um, I'm sure that this is attributed to somebody else, but what I have
0: kind of coined in my practice is request and rebuttal so every request is valid in my opinion you are allowed to request dishes don't stay in the sink Mm -hmm. right and your partner or your child or whoever it is that you're making the request to has like can hear it and say okay I'm hearing that you don't want dishes in the sink and with the way that my morning is set up and what I what time I have to get to school or what time I have to get to work, sometimes it just doesn't fit into my morning schedule and can we make this compromise that the dishes do get done after work or after school mm-hmm. or we never go to sleep with dirty dishes, right? And we can find this compromise. Um, I kind of reframe it as like, what is a, a more positive ask mm-hmm. than like a harsh like, don't do like, don't leave your dishes in the sink. Right. Because for me, that feels so different to my nervous system of, Hey, would you mind doing your dishes Mm -hmm. instead of don't ever do that again? Right. Those feel like the 12 year old inside me doesn't (laughs) stomp her feet when someone has a request. Right. And I think that whether it's cultural or, or anything else, we have a really hard time asking for what we want. Yes. So do you have any tools or is there anything that you work through with your clients to help them maybe get clear? And then after they're clear on the
1: want, how they actually ask for it. Sure. So again, I don't think we're taught how to be satisfiable. Um, Maybe it wasn't safe to ask for what we wanted. Maybe we were punished for asking for what we want. Maybe we don't have a history of success in getting what it is when we want um maybe we just have never had the spaciousness to dream and so this idea of being able to name what you want first and again being more replenished is helpful with that Mm -hmm. um surrounding yourself with examples of what it is that you might want can be helpful so you're not trying to like generate it all on your own um but being able to name what it is that would satisfy you is the first step and then after that Again, checking in with the other person like, hey, I have a request around something that I would really love. You know, when would be a good time to talk to you about it? So consenting into it. And then like the sticky moment is when somebody tells you what they want. They tell you they're 100%. They tell you what they want and need and it is not what you want. And like this fear comes up and this anxiety comes up and you're like, you act as if the thing they asked for is already happening And so you just go into like defensive mode. And Mm -hmm. so really being able to like name on the front end, if it's true, this is an inquiry that I have. I'm not telling you this is how it is. I'm curious about this right now. Or even if you are coming in and being like, I know I need this and I'm going to move forward with it. If it's a relationship you want to have longevity with, being able to be like, and I know that's hard for you. How how can I repair knowing that this is going to be hard for you? Like, what do you need from me so that you know that I still care about you even while I'm doing this thing that I know you're going to hate? That is so, so, so important.
0: Um, I can't remember if I've talked about this. Just it's. I feel like this has been so at the forefront of my mind lately that I don't know if I've talked about it on the show or just like with every friend around me. But I think that with things like love languages and Enneagrams and horoscopes and all of these different things. They are great tools. Do not get me wrong. I am so pro anything that gets you to dive into yourself and self-understanding more. Mm-hmm. I think the shadowy side of that then becomes, this is my love language, so you need to show me love this way, Right? or it comes with this kind of like expectation of, well, what do you mean? I'm a 2 three, and this is how you're supposed to initiate conversation with me. Right. Um, so I love the bit about, and I know this is hard for you. And I recognize that this is something that you're really working on. Yeah. Um, that seems like such a novel
1: concept for people to to recognize. I feel like you need a certain amount of spaciousness to not feel like the bad guy if somebody's coming to you and asking for something that they can't get from you to feel like you're less than or not providing enough in some way. I think it's really easy to feel like the bad guy. I think it's also really easy to feel like the bad guy if you're asking for something that you know is going to hurt the person that you mm-hmm. love. And this idea of getting out of the the narrative that there's a bad guy in this and we are in differentiated precious vessels that are gonna want certain things And it is okay that we want different things and we can still be in loving connection with each other. I mean, this is what's going to be required post-collective liberation, right? That even if we're all coming from self-love all the time and we've committed to not being dominating or oppressive, we are still going to have differences. And when we want different things, how are we going to navigate that without villainizing and demonizing each other? Can you explain the collective liberation a little bit? Sure. So, if we're talking about collective liberation, this is, you know, bodies get to be free and autonomous within a community where we're not allowed to enact harm on one another anymore. So, people are allowed to be free and sovereign and autonomous, but don't have the right to harm other people. And so, we get to be fully expressed human hearts and still have conflict. We get to work within organizations where there are still micro hierarchies, but it's according to consent. It's not according to some kind of I'm more than you're less than it's this idea of like, well, um, Adrian Marie Brown really talks about this in emergent strategy in the most beautiful way, like the fungal networks and how they support each other or the murmuration of birds or the way fish all move together. This idea of like, how are we differentiated vessels that are also working towards the good of the collective? Mm. And how do we start to move towards that? I like, mean, we're doing it right now, right? Like we're building this awareness. We're, we're exposing all of the isms and the phobias. Um, so, you know, this wave of Black Lives Matter, the fact that ableism is starting to be a word in the culture that we're talking about, um, trying to dismantle white supremacy. The fact that we're naming these things, awareness is the first step, right? Mm-hmm. Where we're going, okay, I'm in this... I'm taking the blinders off and all of a sudden I'm becoming aware of these things that maybe my privilege was making me immune to before I wasn't aware of the certain costs that people were experiencing. So that's the first step. And then we have people in movement right now who have wonderful solutions if we just care to listen to them. So there are people who have been doing this for a long time and they're like, y'all listen, like we've got some solutions. Are you willing to try them right now? And there are certain people that have been privileged in our culture and like the obvious one is like cishet white men, right? Have had a position of power for a really long time. So yes, they get to be allies and they get to be co-conspirators, but there are also voices like black femme voices, trans voices that we want to uplift right now because they haven't had the same platforms. Because they've been in this struggle, they're going to be the experts on mm-hmm. what the next move is because they're the ones that are actually that we need to uplift right now.
0: Yeah, it's, you know exactly the person that you were when you walked into your first session it's the wounded healer archetype that we talk about you know like in in schooling to become a therapist the wounded healer is just like every single one of us if we were to take you know the the huge list of archetypes that Carl Jung provides mm-hmm. I shouldn't say every single one, but at least 90% of the people in my class identified top of the list wounded healer. And in my program, before you could graduate, you had to have a year of therapy, 52 hours of therapy logged and signed off by your therapist that you sat in the client's chair. That before I can even begin to help you, I need to know what it's like to sit in that chair. I need to know what it's like, you know, whether it's going through what you were explaining, the different procedures that you have to get through conflict or anything else, you know, as simple as something as, if I'm truly traumatized though, the therapist might have the best intentions by saying, we're going to close our eyes and we're going to go inside. Closing my eyes is terrifying and Mm -hmm. going inside is even scarier because that might mm-hmm. not be a safe place, or that might feel different, or, or maybe I'm not comfortable closing my eyes with the door to my back, whatever right. it is. Those are all things that I, had I never experienced it, had I never gone through it, had I never sat through the process, would have never been able to hold, would have never been able to connect with my client on that level and be like, I know what I'm asking you to do right now is really hard and we can stop at any time, or, and I'm here the whole time, right? It just opens so much to, you know, I think that we're both giving our gifts to the world, and it took being very hurt and being willing to heal and grow to be able to spread spread that gift, right?
1: There was a very floaty grief stricken confusing unknown time when the person that i was before i learned the skill set was starting to transform into the person i was going to be with the skill set and whatever that wounding was that i experienced whatever that pain was that i experienced had formed some kind of personality armoring which was how i identified as myself like oh I'm going to be the social justice warrior. So that means I'm always going to be like the one at the front lines. Like I will yell the loudest. I will stand up every single time. And it, it became this very aggressive personality that was very, very large, very big and, and very dominating. And when all of a sudden I was in, you know, relationship conflict and that person was coming out where I'm like, I'm gonna stand up for myself in this moment and that means I'm gonna raise my voice and I'm gonna show you all of the ways in which you are being terrible to me right now because I can, because I've got all the facts in front of me right now. And when that wasn't healing my relationships, when that was actually losing me relationships, I was like, okay, I have to do something different. And when I learned what that something different was and this like dualistic, like feminist, um, strong woman when that wasn't backed by anger and loudness and self-righteousness when that had to come from a different place when the feminism and the social justice and the strong woman had to come from someplace else I was like I don't know who I am Mm. without that skill set that I built to feel safe and strong and powerful and so there was this moment of despair where I'm like I I don't know who I am anymore because so much of what I organized around has now been dismantled and so there was this period of like, what, what am I going to grow into now? And I like, that's what the work was, right? That's what like sitting in that chair did where it was like, okay, you've tried that. You know what that, you can go back to that anytime you want to, but we're going to give you a bunch of other possibilities that you can try see if that feels better. Yeah.
0: I, um, there's, there's kind of like the metamorphosis explanation of it all that, you know, before, and you can, it, I see you nodding like you, you've heard this, so you are welcome to stop me and and correct any parts, because it's been a very, very long time since this was introduced to me. Um, but my understanding, right, is when the caterpillar goes into the cocoon, it turns into, it like melts mm-hmm. into m- mushy gunk. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> That's the scientific term, you guys, mushy gunk. <laughs> yeah. And essentially has to rebuild right into the butterfly before exiting the cocoon right and if you were to dissect a caterpillar it has the wings there it has the potential before it's turned into muck before it's turned into the goo and it doesn't make even though it's there even though the the, the potential, if you will, is there for a the butterfly. It still has to totally disintegrate. Yeah. Before rebuilding. Yeah. And I remember the first time hearing that, just like bursting into tears. Yeah. Because it was so real. Yeah. It was so, so true.
1: I think there are, I love love. All of the different like transformation metamorphosis. So we've got the butterfly that has the caterpillar that has to completely dissolve into the goo before it becomes the butterfly. You have the axolotl who just stays mature or immature forever. You've got the cicada that like skips the stage in between and just goes from being young to fully adult. And it's like, well, what's your metamorphosis process? And this idea that, like some of us are going to have to become goo. Some of us are just going to skip through some of the stages. Some of us are going to occupy different variations of that throughout our different transformations. And my personality type, um, and you may have heard me say this before, I I feel like I say this all the time, but I really thought I was Gandalf fighting the Balrog in the Mines of Moria. I was like, you have to fall in order to (laughs) become great and you have to face the shadow. And I realized that is one way towards transformation and that is often my way towards transformation, but then also opening up the possibility that transformation can also be soft and sweet and slow and supported and just holding that that's a possibility that goo is available, not goo is available. Skipping stages is available, going through every single one and staying in one for a really long time is available. And like each of us gets to decide like what's the one that works for us. hmm I love that. So if people wanted to
0: work with you, learn more about your work, get in touch with you. How can they
1: do that? I would love that. They can email me at be at gmail.com. They can check out my website at betheradicalway.com and then I'm also on Instagram at Be the Radical Way.
0: Awesome. Be the Radical Way, you guys. I will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.